Well, good evening. Welcome back tonight. I'm excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. Um, like Brother Travis said, we had a great service this morning. If you weren't able to be here, um, the Lord really moved this morning. I, we didn't get to see any new births that we know of, um, but who knows what God is doing? Who knows where God is working? And uh, that's, that's the great part about ministry. Uh, as a pastor, sometimes it's, it's very easy to let yourself be discouraged. You walk off the stage and uh, Satan hits you immediately with, you should have said this or you should have used this illustration. Or if you'd have gone here, this would have been more impactful. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's God's word and he's promised that it'll never return void. And um, so I fully believe that uh, in the weeks to come, maybe even the months to come, maybe the years to come, who knows what God has started today. Uh, and any time that we gather together, that should be our heart, that God would start something in us individually and for those around us. And so uh, I pray that's your heart. If you will this evening, open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. I, I had a completely different message that uh, I was going to preach uh, this evening, but as I prayed over it and as I looked over it, uh, the Lord just brought me to this. And I'm just going to be honest with you this is something that God's really been opening up to me uh, in my personal study time. I have been stuck on these two verses that we're going to talk about uh, for a couple of weeks now. And I think the best title for this message would really be uh, What's Next? What's Next? Uh, a lot of times in the Christian life, um, I, and especially as I have had the opportunity to be an interim pastor for a church for a little time, I have recognized this about um, that church and, and the other churches that I have had the opportunity to preach in. Uh, there's two common themes that I feel like run throughout the churches in America. And, and one is we, uh, we get people saved, we put them in the pew, and then we tell them to do two things. Read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. Read, read your Bible and, and pray. And, and then when people come with us with problems and issues, we always fall back to read your Bible and pray. But then we fail to teach people how to read their Bible or how to pray. Okay? Uh, and so I, I have come to recognize that uh, it may not be true here at, at Hillcrest. It may very well be true. I'm sure there are some spiritually immature saints of God sitting amongst us to tonight, but uh, and the church in general, the churches that I've been in across Middle Tennessee and across Eastern Kentucky, I've come to realize that we are basically saved infants sitting in a pew. That's where we, that's where we are. And I believe that's why the church in America is struggling like it is. I believe that's where most of our problems come out of. Uh, that we have either saved infants sitting in the pew, or we have what we talked about this morning, lost sinners playing a role, just playing a part. And, and so uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13 are really where I want to focus tonight. And um, if you will, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, ask for His blessing on this message, and then we'll get started. Dear Lord, we just come to you tonight, God, and Lord, as we had such a good spirit this morning, God, as from the moment that I stepped into the foot of your 
your church here today, Lord, and just the encouragement that I got as I walked down the hall, the prayers that were prayed over me before uh, the, the message even began, Lord, the worship that you just uh, came out and, and showed yourself mighty and powerful, and then the message, Lord, how, how it just flowed naturally. God, we want to give you all the praise and glory, God. That's nothing, anything that we can conjure up. That's not something that we can schedule or produce, but God, we need you in each and every moment of our time of worship. And so, God, I ask for the same blessing for tonight's message, Lord. I ask for the same open ear and receptive hearts uh, of your people, Lord. And God, even though we know some held on, God, though we know some resisted you, Lord, they may have come back tonight. You know if they're here, God, they might be out there tonight, God, and this may be the moment, this may be the message that they need to hear so they can place their faith and trust in you. And so, God, we just uh, leave everything and you're all-knowing, uh, you're omnipresent, and you're omnipotent hands, Lord, that you would just have your way in us tonight. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 will be our focus text, but I want to read these first verses, verses 1 through 11. So you follow with me here, okay? If there be... Therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you all my joy, that you all be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Here's where the real kicker gets in because in verse 5 here, Paul gives us the perfect example of what this looks like. Verse 5, Paul starts giving us the example of Christ and he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, which is uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of our Father. That right there is the gospel message, is it not? That Jesus Christ will look out over the portals of heaven that have all of glory standing among Him, that have angel uh, among angel among angel, just millions of angels praising, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. For Him to look out on that golden road, for Him to see that crystal sea where there was no, no imperfection, no sin, nothing that would, uh, that would bother Him or agitate Him or make Him angry, but yet he left all of that, left all of that to come to a nasty, filthy, dirty old planet, walk among us, live perfectly just so he could die on a cross for your sins. And I mean, that's the gospel in and of a nutshell. And Paul even takes it to its very conclusion in those last two verses, in verses 10 and 11. He gives us the, fore, the forecast. What's going to happen? One day every knee will bow. And every tongue. And this is how I love how Paul says this. When he says every tongue should confess, what that is saying literally, a literal interpretation, is that every single mouth, every single tongue is going to say one thing, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That is, I mean, that's the salvation message. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. And so when we are convicted with that, when we understand that, when God has worked in our hearts that we are a dirty, rotten sinner, not worthy of His love, not worthy of His affection, not worthy of His mercy, but that He loves us so much anyways that He is willing to bestow it on us. If all we do is just admit to our sins and believe in Him as our Savior, then He will wash us white as snow. I mean, that's the gospel message, isn't it? Now, the question is, when we've accepted that, when we've taken that step of faith, What's next? What's next? Where do we go from there? Is our job to simply show up at church, sit in a pew three times out of the week? One of my professors, I think he made a very astute observation. He said, if you want to know how much your church loves Jesus Christ and really just really cares about God, don't look at your Sunday morning attendance because that just shows you how much they love the preacher. That just shows you how much they like the speaker. Those that show up and, and, and fill your pews, for the most part, they're just coming for a show. They're just coming because they like the way you entertain them. And then he said, take it a step farther. Don't even, uh, don't even look at your Sunday night crowd. Don't look at your Sunday night crowd. If you want to know how much people really care, you look at your Wednesday night. If your highest attendance is Wednesday night, that's the group that has said, hey, I'm setting everything off to the side. I'm marking off my calendar. I want to know where God can use me on Wednesday night. Where do we go? Where do, what happens? What, what is our responsibility after we've been saved? What's next? And I believe Paul tells us here in verses 12 and 13. Look at what it says. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So when we talk about the Philippians here, and we talk about Paul who is writing to the Philippians, we need to understand the relationship of the Philippians. If you were to go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, you would see there very quickly, Paul tells the Philippians that me and Timothy, we are servants of the Lord. That word servants there, uh, it means to be a slave to him. And, and I'm not going to go in, you know what that means, what a do-loss slave means. It's somebody who has no rights. It's someone who doesn't dictate his own life. It's someone who doesn't get to choose where they go to work, who they're going to marry. It's somebody that has said, my master can take care of me far better than I can take care of myself. And so I'm going to put everything into my master's hands. And who he tells me to marry, that's who I'll marry. Where he tells me to work, that's where I'll go to work. Where I, he tells me to go to church, that's where I'll go to church. That's who Paul says his relationship and Timothy's relationship is with the, with the Lord. They're doula slaves. Uh, if we were to go to Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40, you would see the creation of this church of Philippi. Paul has a very uh, different relationship with the Philippians than he does with many other churches. See, if you remember with me correctly, before Paul came into Philippi, it was not his original intention. His original intention was to continue to push Asia Minor and continue to work in that Asia Minor area. But he got a Macedonia call that said, hey, brother, we need you to come give us the gospel. So you come out here. And it said the spirit prohibited him from continuing his work. And so he moves over into Greece. And the first church that he plants in Greece is this church in Philippi. The first church that he plants is this church in Philippi. Now, I don't know about you, but first, uh, 
Uh, it's just unique, isn't it? When something is your first, it's just different. It's just special. There's just a, a connection that goes beyond any other connection. When I, when I uh, married Heidi, she's my first and only wife. But there's a special connection there. I mean, there is, a, there is a connection that goes beyond anything else. When I, when I got here and I preached my first sermon on Ezekiel 33, it is a connection with me. When the Lord brought me to salvation here, right here on these, uh, at this altar, that's a connection. That's a, that's a first, that's a one and only lifetime moment. And so Paul here has this connection with this church. The Philippians, uh, they're, they're a different church than Paul ever encounters. They're mainly a Roman society. They're a Roman mindset. They are Roman-centered. But yet they are one of the hardest working churches. Uh, Philippians, they go above and beyond anybody else that Paul plants. And Thessalonians, he was with them for just a moment, and then he was ran out of the town. He barely had any time to build a relationship. In Corinthians, they're constantly giving him problems, constantly giving him troubles. He's constantly dealing with issues. In Athens, they don't even let him play in a church. They run him out of a town, mock him. But in Philippians, they held true to the doctrine that was presented to them. So where did the Philippians go from here? Paul sitting in a Roman jail cell, the man who has planted their church, the man that they've supported for all this time, his life is on the line. His neck could very well be, t- be severed from his head in just a matter of a snap of a fingers and the word from Nero. Where is Philippians going to go from this point on? Paul tells him here in verse 12, he says, look at, look at this. He says, wherefore, my beloved, you see that connection? As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I, I think right here the center word that we need to focus around is obedience. It's obedience that Paul is striving for them. Paul is saying, when I stood before you, when I proclaimed the Lord, when I brought the word to you in person, you were obedient to it. You received it eagerly. You wanted to hear it. And now I'm so happy to report that because I've been away from you, you're still receiving it. You're still being obedient to it. Paul here is not speaking of some kind of moral perfection that they have achieved here. You understand that? You understand that? See, look, look, in verses 5 through 11, that's the, that's the only time that you're going to see moral perfection relate to obedience. Because only Jesus Christ, that was His goal. That was His job as He came to earth was to live out a morally perfect life to the letter of the law, crossing every T, dotting every I. But see, me and you cannot do that. As we learned this morning, our flesh doesn't allow us to do that. We, we fall prey to sin. And so what is our goal? What is the end game for us? It is obedience of repentance. It is obedience to repentance. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, when I was before you, when I proclaimed before you, when I gave you the word, you were obedient to it. You were repentant to it. It broke your heart. It changed your life. It took you from a life of sin and turned you into a church and a bride of Christ. And Paul is saying, now that I'm not with you anymore and I'm standing here in this jail cell and I'm getting this report of how far you've grown and how far you've gone, I'm excited to know that you're continually being more obedient. Let me ask you something. When we look at that light, when we look at that connection, when we look at that, uh, that, 
that this love that's being showed between the Philippians and Paul, do we see ourselves in that same light? When I preached my first message here, we're going on a little over a year in Ezekiel 33. Some of y'all may not even remember it. Heidi says it's still the best sermon I ever preached, so that tells you how far I've come. (laughs) But I I preached Ezekiel 33, and it was simply, uh, where have all the watchmen gone? Where have all the watchmen gone? Where, Where have all the people who when I was younger were out beating down the doors and knocking on the doors and coming together. Who, where were all the people that were warning us who needed to hear it? The youth that are here that needed to hear it. The, the, the lost people in the community needed Where have all the watchmen gone? Have we lost our identity as a church? Have we lost who we are? Have we walked away from being obedient to what God has called us to do? Another memorable time that I, that I had the opportunity to preach was standing in the barley fields of life. And I preached a sermon that the Lord gave me that, that challenged you. That even when the storm clouds come, even when you hear rumors, when you, uh, when you don't know who to believe, when you don't know who to trust, is it worth it just to stand in the barley field? Is it worth it just to fight for the church and for the bride of Christ? Forget the man who's standing behind the pulpit. Forget the ones that you feel like have hurt you. Is it worth it enough for you to pick up your sword and pick up your copy and go to work? My question is, is if we were to give us, if I could give a spiritual survey and see where you have been over the course of the time and over those messages, would I be able to stand as Paul stood with the Philippians and say, not only were you obedient when you received the message, but now you've grown to a point that you're even more obedient when you don't receive the message coming directly from my mouth. You understand what I'm saying here? Obedience is the key to Paul's message. Everything he's going to tell them from this point on hinges on the idea of being obedient. And here's the thing. Obedience is the end for God. See, to us, it's the means of salvation. We've got to be obedient. We've got to admit we're a sinner. We've got to believe and have faith. But to God, that's the end of it. That's the end of it. All He asks from you is obedience. He can't ask anything else because you can't accomplish it. He just wants you to be obedient. Look what it says here. What, he says, Not only have you been obedient in my presence, but you've also been obedient even more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now here we gotta we we gotta really dig in deep here, okay? You got your boots on, got your shovel out, we're gonna dig in deep here, okay? What is Paul talking about when he says work out your own salvation? Jerry, I thought you said salvation is not of works. I thought you said this morning that we are nothing but vile, nasty sinners. And, and, and when God looks at us, all he sees is our sin if we're apart from Christ. I, I thought you said we can't do anything apart from Jesus Christ. How can we work out our own salvation? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. What Paul's saying here, and what I believe a, a really good translation here, because I think we take this, this, this idea of working out, and what we do is we think, okay, God, now that you've saved me, now that your spirit has entered into my life, I'm not going to worry about the spiritual end of things, and I'm just going to go to work in my flesh. 
I'm going to look for areas and opportunities in the church that I want to be in, that I want to be a part of, that I think people will look at me and give me praise, that I feel like I'm, I'm best suited and fitted for. That's how I'm going to work out my salvation. What Paul is saying here, I believe a really good strict, uh, if we were just wanted to have a literal translation, Paul is saying, work according to your own salvation. Work according to your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, what's the difference? What's the difference? If you will, flip with your Bibles to me or with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. What is Paul talking about when he's saying, work according to your salvation with fear and trembling? Does that mean I need to be wallowing on the floor because God is so holy and I'm so unrighteous? I need to be walking on eggshells in my life? Is that what Paul's saying here? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, I believe Jesus Christ Himself gives us the answer to what it means to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, correct me if, you, if I'm wrong, but it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here, he, he begins his Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon that he's noted for, probably the sermon that if anybody knew what Jesus said outside of John three sixteen, they would tell you about the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off right off the bat and he says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to have joy, if you want to have delight in your life, then you need to be poor in spirit because that is the only way to inherit the kingdom of God. So now we have to answer what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it obviously doesn't mean to be financially poor. Y'all believe that? You don't have to be financially poor to be a Christian. Now, you may be financially poor, but you don't have to be financially poor to be a Christian. It doesn't even mean morally poor. You don't have to continue to sin like we talked about this morning in order for God's grace to abound on your life. When he's talking about being poor in spirit, what Jesus is saying is that when you look in and of yourself, when you look at your spirit apart from God, you see that nasty, vile nature of who you are. You see that spiritually you are bankrupt. You have nothing to give. You have nothing to offer. And in your spirit and in yourself, you know there's no way that you deserve nor can you inherit the kingdom of God. And so you need somebody to pay that debt for you. You need somebody to do the work for you. You need somebody to pay off your spiritual bankruptcy. That's what Jesus is speaking about. Okay, so we bring this back in. What is, what is Paul saying when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? What Paul is saying is the same spirit that you had, that idea of being a poor lost sinner, of not deserving God's grace, when God convicted you and, and, and pointed that out to you and saved you, that ought to be the same spirit that you're working in over here. That ought to be the same spirit that is now coming out of your life and coming into your hands. And now it's, no, it's not a matter of where do I want to work, it's where does the spirit want me to work. It's no longer does this impress this person, it's does, does this please God. It's no longer does this where I want to be, it's is this where God is placing me. You see what I'm saying? See, we've got to, not only does that, that idea of being poor in spirit count and it's so important in our salvation experience, but what Paul is saying is you should have that same spirit that continues to work out your life, that continues to work out and prove that your salvation is true and genuine. 
So where do we start? Where do we begin? What's next after salvation? We need to have an inner spiritual check because I'm afraid a lot of people think they don't say it with their lips. Uh, in fact, they say the exact opposite with their lips. Oh, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I, I'm just on the raid to glory. Oh, amen. I can't do anything. But then when we look at their actions, when we look at what they're doing, they have placed themselves intentionally, not because of where the Spirit has put them, but because of where the flesh has put them. Why? Because they're not operating under that same idea that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. Y'all following me? You tracking with me here? So to work out, in order to do good works, in order to continue to work in and of what God has asked us to do, we've got to keep that same mindset. Our mindset's got to be right. Look, that's what chapter 2 is all about. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Let the same mind that Jesus Christ had when He left all of glory and came to a filthy planet to save your soul, let this mind be in you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But then verse 13 carries it on. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of His good pleasure. For it is God that works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Okay, so here I am. I, I'm a born-again believer. I'm a Christian. I'm working out uh, my, my salvation because I'm, I'm keeping that same spirit, that same spirit that showed me how spiritually bankrupt I am. That same spirit is working in me. And so God has placed me here and I'm doing what God has asked me to do because it's God is the one who's working in you. You get that? You can't work outwardly. You can't do anything for the church. You can't do anything for your family. You can't do anything outwardly that God isn't working in you inwardly. That's what this verse is telling us. That's what Paul is telling us. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That, that idea of worketh, uh, to not have a King James term, it's just working. It's a continual process. It's a continual idea. It's not that God worked on you when you were saved and then He'd put you off to the side and now you have the right to sit in a pew and not do anything. It's that when He saved you, not only did He do a work in you that drastically changed your life, drastically changed your outcome, but now He's put you on a new path and He's placed you in His service and so He's continually working in you. He's continually working. He's continually placing you one step at a time, one step at a time. People all over this world are wondering, what does God want me to do? What's God's will in my life? Where does God want me to go? And the best advice that I have or the best advice that has ever been given me is the one that's right in front of your face. The one that God has put, if you are a true child of God, whatever God has put directly in front of your face, because that's the one that he's working in you. Look, God understands we, we will get things confused. He doesn't want His will to be difficult. He don't want His will to be something we struggle with. He doesn't want the work that He's doing in us to be a, a, a puzzle and a maze. I mean, why would He save you just to get you all confused again? It's our flesh that does that. It's when we move out of that sphere of being poor in spirit and now we can stand on our own because we're big boy saved Christians and we can do what we want to. That's where confusion starts coming in. But right here, Paul tells us, Paul tells us, look, God's the one doing the work in you. He's the one that is changing you. And look how he's changing you, both to do his will and to do the work of his good pleasure. 
He's changing your will and he's changing your actions. Let's, uh, when we look at these two words, those two words are active. That means right now. So let's look at this all again, okay? Y'all stay with me, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through all this one more time because I don't feel like you're getting it. God's over here. He's working away. He's chugging away, man. He's trying to change everything about you. He's trying to bring you and conform you into His image, into His mindset. He's doing all He can. He's working inside of your life. Now, what should be the outcome of that is that our will is changing and conforming to His will because He's doing the work in us. Now we're becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming more and more like the image of God. We're starting to have the same mindset of God. We're starting to understand what God wants us to do. He's changing our will, our desire, our wants, our intents. And those things are active. That means at this moment, God's changing my wills and my desires. That means... Ten minutes from now, guess what? God's still changing my wills and my desires. And that continues every day, every second, every moment of your life. If you're a saved believer, God is continually changing you, trying to bring you to His will in your life. Now, if a mindset changes, if a mindset changes, then don't the actions have to follow? Right? If your mindset and who you are and your nature has truly been changed, don't your actions have to play that out? Paul here is saying that not only should our will, should our intent, who we are, not only does the inner core begin to change within us, but now that work starts displaying itself outwardly. And as we continue to work in those where God has placed us, as we continue to carry out God's purpose and God's will in our life, it is bringing about God's good pleasure. It is bringing about God's good pleasure. It is that simple. You want to know what God wants to do in your life? You want to know what God's will in your life is? God's will is for you to let Him work in your life so it changes your intent, your desires, and it changes your heart, and it comes out through your hands and your feet, and you start doing work that works out your salvation. See, I, I think we have this idea that God saves us spiritually, but then He asks us to do the work of a saved life in our flesh. I think that's the idea we have as Christians and as believers. We think that God saved us spiritually. He did a supernatural work that we can't even see or understand or comprehend, but yet then He turns around and asks us to work out our Christian life in our flesh. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying God not only saved you spiritually, but He is spiritually working in you so that way your physical life, your flesh, will be conformed to what He wants it to do. Let me give you a picture of this. Everybody turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Some of y'all may not know this. I didn't know it until just a little while ago. I actually went back and read the first five chapters, and I, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, it's the first time in the entire Bible that we find the word grace. Isn't that amazing? Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 is the first time in the entire Bible that we see the word grace. And I believe this is so important. And what's so crazy about Genesis chapter 6 is it's not known, it's not commonly known that this is the first place that we find grace. 
What's commonly known about this chapter, we get all caught up on, on who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men. And is this angel sleeping with human beings? Who is this? I mean, that's where, we're, that's where our minds go. And that's where our flesh wants to go. But I believe the importance of this passage, even though it's important for you to make sure you get that other stuff right, I believe the importance of this passage is found in verse 8, where God says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you track with me for just a moment, okay? When Jesus was speaking on this earth and he was talking about the end days and the last times, what did he say? He said, those days, if you want to know a, a, a picture of what those days will look like, if you want to know uh, kind of uh, an idea of what it's going to look like in those days, it's going to look like the days of Noah. It's going to look very similar to the days that Noah lived in. When I brought a flood and destroyed this entire planet except for eight souls, that's what the day is going to look like. When I come back again, right? So if there was any, I believe, person in the Old Testament who would probably be more capable of living in our life and in our day and in this time with the problems and the issues that we face, it would be Noah. Because each and every day we grow closer and closer to looking just like that day that Jesus Christ and God wiped out this planet with a flood. I mean, we, 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 we are perverse in every way. But look at this man. This man, Noah, shows us how to find grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Now, what does it mean? What would it have meant to a Hebrew? When a Hebrew wrote, because Moses wrote this, and he wrote it to the children of Israel. So when the children of Israel would have read this, what would it have meant to them for Noah to found grace. And so I dove into it. What, 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 what would it mean to a Hebrew to find grace in someone's eyes? And here's what I came up with. When a Hebrew, when they came across passages like that to find favor in the eyes of someone or to find grace in the eyes of someone, what that meant was this. That meant that the person who found the grace, the person such as Noah in this example, that when he saw someone who was far greater than him, maybe to an Israelite it would have been a king or a judge or a prophet. When they saw someone who was holier, greater, more majestic, more worthy of praise, when they saw someone of that nature coming towards them, they would bow themselves low to the ground. They would get as low to the ground as they possibly could. And they would stay there and they would wait until that person came and lifted them up. Until that person came down and, and lifted them up and put them on level ground with them. You see, now the righteousness is not about what Noah did. The righteousness is not on the one who has bowed himself low. The righteousness is imputed on him because of the one who picked him up. The one that lifted him up. You see what I'm saying there? And so here's what we get now. Here's where, here's where we're getting to this. So Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Did that mean that Noah was any better than that generation he lived with? Did that mean that he was in and of himself not a sinner? I mean, the Bible says he's perfect and not just the next sentence or the next verse, right? What, I mean, did he not deserve the same judgment? Do we not all deserve hell? Isn't that what we deserve as human beings? as flesh and blood, I present to you that Noah gives us a perfect account, not only of what it looks like to be saved, because Noah understood, hey, I don't deserve, I don't deserve this ark that God's asking me to build. I don't deserve to last 
through this flood. I deserve to drown just like all these other people. I deserve it. But you know what? I'm going to bow myself low. I'm going to put my faith that God's going to come lift me up. I'm going to lay myself to the ground. I'm going to put myself at His mercy. And when God comes and lifts me up, now He's put me on, on, on level ground with Him. Not because of who I am or anything that I deserve, but because of all that He is. And whatever He asks me to do, I'll do it from that point on. Amen. And what did Noah do? Hebrews eleven seven says that God warned him, and so Noah built the ark. God warned him, so Noah built the ark. And this entire chapter here, in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, gives us a whole story of Noah. And how because he was poor in spirit, because he laid himself low before God, when God lifted him up, he did not take that to mean that he was any better or that he was anything different, but he took that same attitude, that same approach of being in fear and trembling and working out his salvation because of the instructions that God gave him to do. And now Noah stands as a picture of what salvation looks like in my life and in your life. Amen. Can I tell you today, can I tell you today, when we're going to close and go to invitation, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, I'm speaking spiritual here. I'm not talking literal. Don't go out and start building arcs, okay? Spiritually speaking, though, there's an ark that God's asked you to prepare. And He didn't ask you to prepare it just for yourself and for your family. I fully believe God, if there would have been anybody else that would have answered uh, Noah's call, if there would have been anybody else that would have listened to Noah's preaching, if anybody would have bowed themselves low and understood the destruction that was coming on their life, but the mercy that was available to them, I fully believe God would have supplied a room for them on the ark. And you as Christians, you are the Noah's of your day. You are the ones who have already bowed yourself low. You are the ones who have already accepted this grace and this mercy. But the problem is, is now we have this attitude that because we accepted this grace and mercy at this point, and because Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins, now for some reason, we don't have to work in that same attitude. That we're just a slave bought by grace. That we're just, we need to be working for our Savior because He saved us. Because He built the ark for us. Because He saved us and brought our lives. Now we're going to do whatever He's asked us to do. No matter how crazy that sounds. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us. We're going to open up our lives and we're going to go to work and start building our spiritual arks. That will allow other people to come in. And come to know the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. You want to know what your next step is in your life? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Remember, remember to be poor in spirit. That it is Jesus Christ who has lifted you up, that has put you in the heavenly of heavenlies. And one day you will sit as a joint heir of God. One, that is your future. There's nothing that can change that. But today, at this moment, at this time, you're to be a servant. Amen. You're to be a slave. Amen. I'm to be a servant. I'm to be a slave. And we're to be about our Father's business. So but when we come to this time of invitation, as we close, one question I have, two questions I have to ask you. First one is, where are you working right now? 
If Paul charged the Philippians, work out your own salvation because it is God that is working in you. Where are you working right now? And if the answer is, Jared, I'm not working anywhere. Jared, I haven't taught a Sunday school class. Jared, I haven't witnessed to anybody. Jared, I haven't done anything. All I do is just show up for church. Can I tell you, that is a very dangerous sign that God has never done a work in you. That's a very dangerous sign that God is not working in you. And if He's not working and never done a work in you, then you need to come forward and bow yourself low at this altar and allow Him to lift you up so you can go to work. My second question is, if you are working right now, if you're in a position that you're working in, maybe it's staff, maybe it's Sunday school teacher, maybe you're a deacon, maybe it's song director, maybe it's choir member, wherever you're working, did you put yourself there? Did you go there because the pastor needed somebody? Or because somebody goaded you into it? Or because your mama or your daddy told you to come up here? Did you put yourself there? Or did the Spirit who was doing the work in you, who was changing your will, changing your life, changing your works, is He the one that placed you there? And so now when you're working, it just comes naturally. It just flows out of you like butter. Those are the two questions that we need to answer tonight at the altar.